We've been doing a series in the book of Philippians. Uh, this is a book that is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was sort of the first and most significant Christian missionary, um, and he's writing this letter to a church in a place called Philippi. It was a church he had planted. And uh, one of the themes of the letter that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks is this theme of the advance of the gospel. So in the letter, he's going to tell us about, like, well, how does the gospel, the good news about Jesus, like, how does that spread? How does that go forward? And specifically, he wants to show you how the gospel spreads through community, through community. So uh, here's an interesting idea. Um, if you think about uh, a community like this, you know, like, what do we do together? Like, we, we live life together. We, um, you know, come to a place like this on a Thursday night. And then there's a lot of things that happen outside of a Thursday night. Like, you know, I know that for those of you who've been at Thrive for a long time, like, you can probably tell us, like, there are all kinds of, like, events and hangouts and just things that kind of organically will spill over from what happens here on a Thursday night. And that's cool. Like, that's what it means to, like, live life together with other people. But have you ever thought about that as actually being a vehicle for helping the world know who Jesus is? Um, there's someone who uh, coined the phrase, uh, community is the hermeneutic of the gospel. So the word hermeneutic, that's just a, you know, a word that basically means like how you um, interpret something. So what he's saying is, is that community is actually the way that you like see or interpret what the gospel really is. And so when you see like a group of Christians who are loving each other, and united together, and, and when they're refusing to divide over petty differences, over things like that, that is a showcase of who Jesus is to a world that doesn't know him. So that's what this letter's about. And um, what I'm going to do tonight is actually take up kind of an interesting uh, topic. One of the things we love to do at Thrive is to, every, every time we're going through a part of the Bible that raises sort of like a hot topic or a, a cultural hot button issue, sometimes we'll just take a whole night and pause and look at that particular issue. So we've had nights like this where we've talked about things like pornography, um, homosexuality, we've talked about um, subjects like that. The one tonight is not nearly as controversial, but it is something I'm really, really excited about. And I'm gonna, tonight we're going to take uh, an evening to talk about the subject of heaven and hell heaven and hell. Now, the reason for this, um, so if you were here last week, raise your hand if you were here last week. Okay, okay, so most of you. Anyone remember what we looked at last week? Just shout it out. Jesus! Jesus! Yeah, great. Sunday school answer always works. Uh, anyone else have anything slightly more specific? Uh, yeah, well, what was it? The Bible. Okay, man, you guys are on it. Uh, what did, we, what, what did we look at last week in this book? What was the, the subject? Suffering. Yeah, right. So, so we looked at suffering. So like Paul is literally writing this letter while he is chained to a Roman soldier, like he's in jail. He can't go anywhere. And yet he's saying that like, despite my suffering, like the gospel has been going forward. So we looked at this, this question of like, why is it that Christians can have joy in their suffering? And if you're here last week, you remember there were a couple of reasons. Number one was the redemptive reason. So just as Paul says that like his chains advance the gospel, God actually loves to do some of his best work in the darkness. And that means that sometimes your seasons of greatest trial can actually be the, the things that God will want to redeem and use um, to make you look more like Jesus. So there's the redemptive reason. And then the second reason we talked about was the relationship reason, that Jesus is the pioneer of our, of our suffering and so that means that when we suffer, he meets us in it, which means that when we get suffering, we get him. And that, that therefore means that suffering is the place where you actually can come to know Jesus the most. And so those are two reasons why we said last week 
that you can be a Christian and you can have joy in your suffering. Like, your joy doesn't have to be tied to your circumstances. But, if you look at the chapter that we were looking at, chapter 1, there's actually one more reason that Paul mentions here. Um, we have to talk about it. It's, it's just that important. And that's what you might call the resurrection reason. So there's the redemptive reason. There's the relationship reason. And then tonight, we're going to look at this, this last one, the resurrection reason. And he talks about it right here in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 20 through 26. It'll be up on the screen, I think, if you want to follow along. Yeah, there it is. Okay, so he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Okay, so this Saturday, anyone know what day it is this Saturday? Halloween. Yeah, right. Okay, so, you know, very appropriately, tonight, we get to talk about death. I'm going to plan this just for you guys. Um, actually, I, I, I actually didn't even realize that it was Halloween on the night that we're talking about, like, death and dying, like, until, like, today, I think it was. But this is actually a passage about death. Um, that's what he's talking about. You know, it's very fitting for, for Halloween because uh, he says here, he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. And that's an allusion to dying. Now, the reason that he's saying this is that you've got to remember Paul is in jail because he's waiting to be put on trial. And he knows that his trial actually might end with him getting executed. So, you know, he's saying here, like, there's a real possibility that I might actually, I might actually get executed here. And yet, look at this. As he's, like, pondering his potential imminent death here, look at what he says. He actually celebrates it. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Now, if you were a non-Christian person in the first century and you were reading this, you would have probably thought, this guy is insane. This guy's insane. This is the strangest thing I've ever read. You know, how on earth, you know, what kind of view of death could these weird, wacky Christians have that would lead someone like Paul to say this? And so tonight, I want to zoom in on this and, 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 and see just what kind of treasures are buried in the view that Paul has about death that you can actually... Uh, take and put into your life in a way that will completely change the way that you live. And I'm going to do that by just looking at three things. Uh, number one, I will look at something having to do with our culture. Uh, how does our culture look at death? Number two, I'm going to look at what the Bible says about death by looking at the subjects of heaven and hell. And then number three, I want to ask uh, the so what question. You know, okay, so this is all a great bunch of teaching, but so what? What does it mean? So this first thing, number one, um, really quickly, just like three minutes. Um, I'm not going to time myself like I did two weeks ago, but... You know, you guys can hold me accountable. If, if you want to time me, you can time me, okay? So, but really briefly, just in a couple of minutes, I want to I explain to you in a little bit more depth, like, okay, you have to see how radical Paul's words are here. And the way that you can do that is by actually doing a little bit of comparison. So let's compare what Paul says about death and dying to what our culture says. So uh, I, I want to do this by pointing out two main strategies that our culture has for dealing with death. And number one is the despair strategy. So uh, the despair strategy, in 1973, there was a, a Jewish 
anthropologist, a guy named Ernest Becker, he wrote a famous book. It's called The Denial of Death. And uh, one of the reasons that this, this person argues in this book that we deny death is for the very obvious reason that death is a pretty terrible thing. Uh, here's something he says about death in this book. Um, this is, you might want to like fasten your seatbelts here, okay? Uh, he says, what does it mean to be a self-conscious animal? It means to know that one is food for worms. Man, isn't that depressing? It means to know that one is food for worms. And think about what he's saying here. I mean, so again, he, he is operating from a non-Christian standpoint. And he's saying that if there is no God, and if there is no afterlife, then this is literally true. That one day, everything that you have ever been, and that you have ever worked for, is going to be completely and utterly meaningless. I mean, it's going to literally be as though it had never even happened, as though you'd never even existed. Uh, you know, actually, I... When I um, this will give you some interesting insight into my personality, okay? Um, when I was in fourth grade, or maybe it was fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade, point being, I was in elementary school, and I remember I was having a, a very philosophical conversation on the playground with my good friend Sam. And my friend Sam and I were talking about the fact that, you know, look, why are we in school right now? Because, you know, I guess the only reason we're in school right now is so that we can go, you know, get an education. Well, why are we getting an education? So we can go get a job. Well, you know, why are we getting a job? Well, so that we can make money. Well, why do we need to make money? Well, so that we can enjoy life. Well, why do we, you know, why do we need to enjoy life when, you know, you just give it 70 years and we're going to be dead? <laughs> this was our clever way of trying to, like, avoid having to do our homework, probably. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. They're actually, you know, believe it or not, I think there was a little bit of wisdom in fourth grade Michael. But, but, you know, th th this, is, this is something that I was reminded of recently when someone shared with me that there are actually three deaths that a person can die. So think about this. Number one is your actual physical death. Uh, number two is the, the moment when everyone who ever knew you also dies. And then there's actually a third death. It's the last time that anyone ever speaks your name. <laughs> that was a great reaction, Allison, man. So, so, so you know, the first one is when you actually physically die. The second one was when everyone who ever knew you has also died. And then the third one is when no one even speaks your name. It's as though you never have even existed. So do you see why, why Ernest Becker in this book says that you know, death is a pretty depressing thing, which is why there's the, this first strategy of, of, of the despair strategy. You can speculate. You, know, you can try to make up theories about what comes after death. Uh, but, but, you know, all of that is simply assumption, uh, at least on a secular view. Uh, you know, like, uh, we, just, we don't have any real solid proof or evidence. And the fact is, very, very, very few people actually have had um, sort of the intellectual honesty and the courage to live as though this is really true. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a few exceptions. There were some, like, French existentialist philosophers, but they got so depressed by this that some of them kind of lost it. And so if you're really, really honest with yourself, you, you would have to look death square in the face and come to this position of despair because it's just that grim. So that leads actually to the second strategy, which is the distraction strategy. So the despair strategy and the distraction strategy. The distraction strategy is obvious. Like, well, if death is really so terrible, the one thing that we can do, which the vast majority of us do do, is that we opt for distraction. 
So uh, why are we so obsessed with things like Netflix and shopping and politics and the Seattle Seahawks and what terrible defense they had this last uh, game against the Cardinals? And, you know, and why are we obsessed with things like, you know, I don't know, um, when I was in elementary school, it was Pokemon. These days, it's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all this stuff. You know what Ernest Becker would say? He would say the reason, the reason that you're interested in all those things is because you know that one day you're going to die. And you want to try to hide, you don't want to admit it. You're trying to distract yourself. And then, and then, here is like the creme de la creme, like the, the like number one thing that I think we look to as ultimate distraction. You know what it is? It's love. It's love. So, so here, here's, I think, what's kind of happened in our culture. So, so many people have kind of recognized that uh, you know, there's sort of a widespread loss of belief in God in our culture today. That's what it means to be a secular culture. And, and so some people have claimed that what we're now looking to is something that's been called apocalyptic romance. Apocalyptic romance. So it's this idea that we look to love and to romance as a way to fill the void that God left behind. Uh, and in fact, um, this is something that Ernest Becker talks about in his book. He says, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? Now, here's the zinger. He says, we want redemption, nothing less. We want redemption, nothing less. Now, that is a religion word, that word redemption. He's saying we look to romance as an alternate religion. Now, you're probably thinking, you know, what right does a dead anthropologist have to make such sweeping statements about my love life? But if you don't believe him, listen to this song. Uh, can you guys cue this song here? So, uh, by the way, this is from... Um, Apparently, I'm supposed to know this band. I didn't know about Florida, Georgia, Line. Do you guys know about this? Yeah, that, that was Whitney's response. Yeah. Um, but they have a song called Holy. Do you guys know this song? Can you guys play it back there? Is it going? Okay, go for it. Okay, did you hear that? Now, I know your, your ears are probably bleeding because it was country music. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, now I'm really getting into heresy up here. But do you listen to what he said? It said, you're the healing hands where it used to hurt. You're my saving grace. You're my kind of church. Apocalyptic romance. See, th we, we, th this is like, this goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this theme of idolatry. Like, and actually, the things that we put our identity in are really just distractions, and I think one of the things we're trying to distract ourselves from is just the reality of our limits of the fact that we're human, that we're going to die, that we're all trying to find something that actually has eternal significance that can make our lives have weight and have value. And ultimately, it doesn't work. The despair strategy makes you despair. The distraction strategy actually makes you distracted so that you don't despair, but they both don't work. And, you know, why is this? Why is this the way that our culture looks at death? I mean, it's, I think one obvious answer would be that you know, look, we, we just don't have any idea on a secular worldview of what's beyond death. You know, the only way that we could actually know that from a secular point of view is if someone came back from the dead and told us. And yet, you know, death takes everybody away. The human mortality rate is exactly 100%. Um, you know, no one ever comes back from that. Or do they? 
So, so look, the reason why Paul's view of death is so radical is precisely because the Christian message claims that someone actually did come back from death to tell us what it's like, to tell us what's on the other side. So in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul writes that Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's saying, like, Jesus is the one who finally revealed like what the other side of death is actually like. And because of that, Paul is able to say, like, I actually don't have to live in fear of this. Like, I don't have to despair, and I don't have to distract myself because Jesus. And so that actually brings us to our second point, where I want to unpack a little bit more deeply what actually does the Bible say about, like, what lies on the other side of death? And that kind of brings you to this, uh, this, uh, these two things, heaven and hell. So looking again at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, this is where he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Um, so again, he's talking about, you know, he's talking about uh, the, the afterlife, the next life. And, and if you read this, you might, you know, very easily think that, uh, you know, of course, oh, Paul's talking about dying. Yes. Um, and he's talking about going to heaven. You know, that's the place with all of the harps and the clouds, right? Wrong. Um, sort of, but not exactly. Sort of, but not exactly. So what, what, what we got to do here is I want to give you tonight just a really quick biblical whirlwind tour um, to see, like, what does the Bible actually say about heaven and hell? And so I'm going to use a lot of scripture. I'm going to go pretty fast. So again, you know, really be sure your seatbelt is buckled here. If you're a note taker, uh, the passages will be up on the screen here. One of the places I want to start is where Paul talks about um, heaven in 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter that's all about uh, what lies on the other side of death. And in verse 50 of that chapter, here's what he says. He says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So what is he talking about? Uh, if you read the whole chapter, you find out that he's talking about something called the resurrection body. The resurrection body. Anyone ever heard of that before? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. David, you went to Bible college. You don't count. Come on. I'm just kidding. Uh, so the resurrection body, and he's saying, like, look, we can't enter eternity in our natural bodies. Uh, he says flesh and blood, like the kind of bodies that we are in right now, can't inherit eternity. Instead, he explains that God has designed us to enter eternity in a resurrection body, a perfect body that's not subject to sickness or death or decay. And he also says something in this chapter that's of really critical importance about the timing. You know, when does the resurrection body actually get given? And so if you look at uh, verses 20 through 24, he says this. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. And then here's the key part. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So the key verse here is the italicized one, verse 23. And he's saying that Jesus is the first fruits, that Jesus is the first person to ever receive a resurrection body. And the reason for that is that he's the only person to have been raised from the dead, never to die again. You know, if you've read the Gospels, you know there actually are a couple of people who do get raised from the dead by Jesus. And you've got guys like Lazarus. You've got people like um, Jairus' daughter, um, the widow's son. But they, um, you might say, were kind of like resuscitated. They weren't sort of fully resurrected because they died again. 
But Jesus is different. He's the only one who has ever, at this point in history, been raised from the dead, never to die again. And so he's the, this is why this verse describes him as the first fruits. Jesus has a resurrection body. And uh, that's actually the body that he has right now. But then, what, look at what this verse says. It also says that this resurrection body also is a promise for all of those who belong to him. And it tells you that, that believers will receive that. It says in verse 23 in blue there, when he comes again. So, has that happened yet? Yes or no? No. No, so you know, we, we're told in the Bible that Jesus is going to come back someday. The first time he came to bear judgment when he died on the cross. The second time he'll come back to bring judgment as conquering king. And that hasn't happened yet. So what that means, we'll actually come back to what that means, but for, for a moment here, I actually just want to kind of press pause here and, and just really wave a flag to, to help you notice like what a humongous thing uh, this passage is, is really saying. Uh, you know, let me just kind of take a survey here tonight. So, for, for those of you who are here, I want you to raise a hand if you have ever had a thought that runs something like this. The thought is, heaven, do I really have to go? You know, isn't it just going to be like this eternal worship service where we're all going to be like sitting on a fluffy cloud, playing a golden harp? You know, doesn't that just sound really boring? Like, I love to sing, but I just don't think I could do that for all of eternity. Raise your hand if you've had that kind of thought. Yeah, okay, way to be honest, way to be honest. Yeah, now I actually would have to, like, sympathize with you. Like, there is something about that that does seem a little boring. Like, come on, God. Like, is that really what heaven's all about? But think about what 1 Corinthians is saying. Okay, so if this is true, it can't be that. It can't be that, because if we have physical bodies, that therefore means that heaven has to be a physical place. So not just this kind of pie in the sky, by and by, ethereal, disembodied, you know, you could just blow a little puff of breath and it would just all blow away. <laughs> no, it's actually a physical place. What I, want, what I want you to do here now is, uh, if you have a Bible, jump over to Revelation, the last couple of chapters of Revelation, 21 and 22. Because this, oh, this is just so cool to me. When you get to Revelation, what you find out is that, sure enough, heaven is a physical place. And it's described as the new creation. As the new creation. So uh, I want to read you just the very first couple of verses of Revelation chapter 21. And actually, like, as, you, as I read this, you can even close your eyes and just imagine this. I, I think this has got to be one of the most um, soul-filling passages in all of Scripture. Listen to what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. By the way, this is not something in my notes here, but did you, did you notice what it says about wiping every tear 
from their eyes. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I mean, how do you wipe a tear from someone's eye? Like, you have to literally, like, take your finger and, like, get very close to them and, like, come down on their level and just so gently, so gingerly, so tenderly wipe that tear away. And do you realize that this is what the Bible says God is going to do for every single human sorrow? This is saying that one day everything that is sad will be made untrue. And that is a super cool promise. But I actually want to have you notice a couple of things. So you'll notice on the screen in blue, look at these words. So it says, first of all, like it's described as a new heaven and a new earth. So again, like a physical place. And then it's described as a holy city. That's also a place. And then notice it says it's coming down out of heaven. A lot of times we think about going to heaven as like we're going to like leave earth and just disappear. Do you notice what the Bible says about this? It says that actually like heaven is going to finally one day come down to earth in order to see all of this creation renewed and restored to what it was always meant to be. And I want to actually look at this a little bit more in depth by just meditating on a couple of images that the Bible uses to talk about, like, well, what is this place like? You know, if heaven's a physical place, what is it, what is it, what is it really about? Uh, and the two images are these. Number one, um, if, you, if you read through these chapters, you'll notice that it describes the new creation as a garden. As a garden. If you wanted to summarize the story of the whole Bible, you could actually do it with just that word garden. So think about this. The very beginning of the Bible begins in a garden. And it's this picture of how like, God created this perfect paradise for him to be in perfect relationship with us. But then Adam and Eve decided to make themselves, you know, they, they wanted to sit on the throne. They wanted to be God in God's place. You know, it's been said that sin really stands for shove off God. I'm in charge. No rules. Thank you very much. And that's exactly what led the first garden to be destroyed. But then the climax of the story takes place in a garden. When Jesus rose from the dead, that happened in a garden. If you remember um, in the book of John, it says that Mary, who's one of the first people to meet him, thinks that he's the gardener because it happened in a garden. So the story begins in a garden, it climaxes in a garden, and then actually it's going to end in a garden. Look at what Revelation 22 says. It says, the, uh, so this is, yeah, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Does that sound familiar? The tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What is so cool to me about this is that this is basically saying that we're going to get the garden back. And it's not just going to be what it was back when Adam and Eve had it. It'll be even greater than they could have imagined. You know, there's a story in the book of Genesis, way, way back toward the beginning of the Bible. And it's a story about Abraham. You know, Abraham has come to the promised land and he's kind of gotten a lot of wealth. He's got all these animals, all these herds that he's grazing. And his nephew Lot is with him as well. And Lot's also gotten pretty rich. And so they, they realize, like, the land is not big enough to support both of our flocks. Uh, you know, let's separate. And Abraham tells Lot, like, I'm going to let you have first dibs on the land you want to take. So Lot looks around. And he notices that there's this well-watered plain off to the east in the Jordan River Valley. And he says, I think I want to claim that land. But what it says, it's so interesting. It says that when Lot 
chose for himself the Jordan River Valley. He, he, he looked at it and he saw, it says, he saw that the land was like the garden of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? What I think this is, is I think that in that moment, Lot had a cosmic memory trace all the way back to Eden, and he became homesick for a home he had never known. And the reality is, every single human being deep down is homesick for a home we've never known. And it's the garden. And the Bible says that one day we're going to get it back better than it was ever before. Now think about this. The garden, you know, that means like a place of beautiful sights, smells, sounds. It's a place of rest, a place of richness. And it's actually a physical flesh and blood place. Which again goes to show that we have physical bodies because it's a physical place. And what that means is that one day we're finally going to see this creation as it was always meant to be. You know, when you, um, actually I was talking to Michaela Joy, I don't know where Michaela Joy is, but uh, yeah, hi. <laughs> we were just talking, I was asking you about how your drive was here today. And I think you, you had said something about like how beautiful of a drive it was. And actually, um, that was my experience. I was driving here today and I was just driving down this hill and I was just like, wow, like all of the trees are like these beautiful colors. It's just like a super beautiful day today. But have you ever thought about this? Like imagine a scene like that, you know, maybe a memory you have of like a really beautiful landscape or sunset you saw. Like have you ever thought about the fact that that actually is the world groaning under the weight of sin? That that actually is the world in a state of brokenness. So if that's the world in a state of brokenness, like just think what it's going to be like to actually see creation healed and renewed and restored to be what it was always meant to be. And that is what the garden points to. I want to look at one more image, and that's the image not of the garden, but of the city. Um, So look at this. If you uh, look at Revelation 21 again, uh, one of the things that we saw was that it says that heaven is described as a holy city coming down out out of heaven. Now, uh, cities are kind of an interesting thing in the Bible because when you follow that thread through Scripture, you'll notice that cities are the place where the best and the worst of humanity come together. So, for example, in Genesis 4, uh, Cain, the first murderer, Cain builds a city. And interestingly, all of the people who kind of come out of Cain's family, they, like, invent all this really cool stuff. Like, they're inventing, like, you know, metallurgy and music and farming and all of these, like, great human technologies. And yet, at the same time, the city is also, Cain City is also this place of great murder and violence. And then you've got Genesis 11. This is the Tower of Babel story, where all of humanity has come together to build a city, and they actually uh, have kind of developed some cool new technology to do this, but ultimately, they've come together to build this city as an act of human pride against God. And then you've got the city of Jerusalem. And you might remember that during the history of that city, there are times like in the days of King Solomon, where the city is like so prosperous, but then there are times where the city is so like covered in sin and unrighteousness that like the best thing that God can do for them is to literally wipe them off the face of the earth. So cities are the place where you see the very best and the very worst of humanity come together. And so when the Bible tells you that heaven has a capital city, It's making the breathtaking promise to us that one day we're going to see humanity as she was always meant to be. And if you read through the rest of Revelation, 
it says that the nations will come into that city and they will bring their splendor into it. That actually means ethnic diversity. It says that the kings of the nations will bring their splendor into the city. That means that there will still be some of the things that we're used to today. You know, I actually think that uh, there might actually be like politics in, the, in heaven. I know that's a little bit of a crazy thing to say. I'm not talking about like the kind of politics we're used to. But I am saying that like God is a God that, that loves authority and hierarchy. And that's part of the way he's designed the world. And yet just imagine if all of those structures, all of those systems that are so broken in our world were actually functioning in the perfect way that they were always meant to. We're going to see humanity as it was always meant to be. And I also think that, you know, if heaven is a real place, if it's really a city, then, you know, wouldn't that also give us reason to think that humanity will be unleashed to, you know, kind of continue to, to, to do what we were kind of designed to do in the first place, which was to be, um, you know, those who created things and found ways to glorify God through music and through inventions and through um, poetry and art and, all, you know, all of these things that, in a shadow um, in our human existence now are ways that we can give glory to God in just sort of this faint, messy way. Just imagine what it would be like to see humanity finally free to do that in all of the ways that we were originally intended to do. Isn't that cool? Is that how you think about heaven? That's some of the things that the Bible says about heaven. I want to go back to Philippians really quick. Um, so again, you know, Paul's talking about desiring to depart and be with Christ. So we got to ask ourselves, is this what he's talking about? Is he actually talking about all this? You know, the new heavens and the new earth. And, and hold your horses here because the answer is actually not quite. Not quite. Now the, now, the reason that I say that, I've actually mentioned already. The reason is that when, when Paul is talking about his own death, like Jesus hasn't come back yet. We know that the resurrection, where we get resurrection bodies, that doesn't happen until Jesus returns at the very, very end of the age, which actually would be an indication that when Paul is talking about his own death, he actually is recognizing that he is not going to immediately be in the new heavens and the new earth in the way that we've been looking at just now. He's pointing us to the truth of one more thing we need to look at tonight, which is something the Bible um, it doesn't actually use this phrase, but many people have referred to this as what's called the intermediate state. The intermediate state. Anyone ever heard of that before? Stick up a hand. Okay. So what Paul is telling us here is something that he's talked about in a few other places. So look at um, on the screen here. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. And he says here, As long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. We would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So he's saying, like, look, when I am dead, like, that means I am going to go be with Jesus. Like, he doesn't sort of endorse this idea of soul sleep, which some, you know, groups have believed in. He says, like, no, like, as soon as I die, I get to go be with Jesus, even though the resurrection hasn't happened yet, even though I haven't received a resurrection body. Now, you might be thinking, well, how is that possible? You know, is, is, is it really possible to kind of be with Jesus and yet not have a body? Yeah, I've never not had a body. Have you ever not had a body? I, I don't know. But actually, the Bible would kind of indicate that this is possible. So look at Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, look at what John says. He says this funny thing here. Uh, he says that there's this moment while he's kind of seeing this big vision from God where he sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. So what we find out here is that Paul is saying that there's going to actually be kind of like an intermediate place. You can maybe call it the intermediate heaven, where... Christians will go once they die, um, and, and this will be a place where their souls will be with Jesus. 
And, you know, as to kind of that question, well, you know, how does time work? You know, does Paul actually, you know, has he actually been kind of looking at his watch for the last 2,000 years saying, man, when's that resurrection going to come? I'm really getting eager for my resurrection body. I don't know the answer to that question. But the point is, is that the Bible kind of does make this distinction between the new heavens and the new earth and then what you might call the intermediate state. Now, what's cool about this is that means that the intermediate state is a state of unbelievable joy because we'll be with Jesus. And then it's also a place of unbelievable hope, believe it or not, because there's actually more coming. Like the best of the best, when God brings down the new heavens and the new earth, like that actually is yet to come. So uh, Whitney, would you mind, there's a diagram, uh, I think it's the last slide, do you mind going to that really quick? So I've, I've made a diagram of this, so the small circle, that's what you might call our present state, you know, that's like right now, and then you've got the intermediate state, and then uh, there's that little, you know, kind of vertical arrow, the second vertical arrow there, um, that's when the resurrection happens, at which point there's the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Does that all make sense? Yeah, Cool. So, uh, there's one final thing we got to talk about here just before we move on to the so what question. And unfortunately, this is not nearly as um, nice to have to talk about. But the reason that I want to talk to you about this is that this is one of the subjects that Jesus spoke on. And he spoke on it a lot. And it's the subject not of heaven now, but of hell. Um, and what I want to do to look at this tonight is I simply want to look at the things that Jesus said. I don't want to pin this on my words I want to pin this on Jesus' words. So would you look at, with me at a couple of places where Jesus describes the nature of, of the final destination for those who die without having trusted in Christ for salvation. So number one, look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Uh, what you see in this verse is that Jesus spoke of hell as a place of eternal fire. So he says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a sobering verse. Um, it actually goes to show that, that hell was actually never created for human beings. It says here that it was created for the devil and his angels. And yet, if you go down to verse 46, um, number two, you'll see here in this verse that Jesus spoke of hell as a place of eternal punishment. And here he actually is talking about human beings. He's saying, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, this is also really sobering, and it's hard to, you know, sort of talk about this um, with all of the gravity it's deserved. You know, it's been said that, that hell should be on the heart of Christians more often than it should be on our lips, because our message is not primarily simply about, like, getting a get-out-of-jail, you know, get-out-of-hell-free card, but it's a message of Jesus and the salvation that he has brought us. But, but still, like, this is heavy stuff. I want to look at um, one more verse here. This is um, something that Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Listen to this. He says here, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's hard really even to know kind of what to say to that, um, but I want to share these things with you. Like, you know, at Thrive here, we actually want to love you enough to tell you the truth. And these are things straight from the lips of Jesus. 
Now, there are a couple of questions that probably come up about this, and I want to look at at least one of them. Um, There are many people in our culture who actually would look at some of these things um, that the Bible says about hell and and may not necessarily take them um, particularly seriously, Uh, and I can see why our culture has really turned hell into kind of a cartoon. You know, it's this idea that the devil's kind of this dorky-looking guy in a, you know, Halloween costume with a pitchfork and red horns. But actually, like, the Bible says that, like, you're not as strong as the devil. <laughs> um, don't ever pretend that you are. And it actually says that, that hell, far from being just something that you would see in a far side comic, is actually a real place. And I actually want to go one further than that. You know, so some people have asked the question, well, you know, man, when Jesus talks about hell as a place of eternal fire, as eternal punishment, you know, isn't he just being figurative? You know, isn't he just sort of using metaphors and an allegory or something like that? And, and to be honest, you know, there are some Christians who kind of disagree on this. You know, some people think, oh, these are just images. Some people don't think that they're just images. Um, and, and I don't even necessarily want to wade into those waters tonight. But I want to, what I want to tell you is that, you know, the, the, the worst of it, I don't even think actually is uh, the external stuff. I think the worst of it might actually be the internal stuff. Uh, now think about this. Think about what it would mean um, if hell is a real place. Like imagine time when you kind of caught yourself like at your like utter worst, like most self-righteous, you know, most petty, most vindictive. And now what I want you to do is I want you to imagine those things growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger for all eternity and never stopping. I mean, can you even contemplate like what kind of person you would be? Like there wouldn't be much of you left. Like you would be so consumed by like all of like the deepest, darkest, worst parts of your heart. Um, and this is why, at one point, C.S. Lewis said this about hell. He said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell, and each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. He's being a little figurative there, but look, you know, he's basically saying, like, you know, if you really consider what hell means, like if you're literally like saying, like, God, I'm gonna completely reject the offer of salvation that you've given me, and I'm going to remain on the throne of my life, well, you know, all the bumpers would be gone. All of God's grace that kind of keeps your lesser nature in check would be completely gone. And it exactly what exactly what Lewis says would happen. That is, if anything, a more terrifying thought than all the external stuff. It's the internal stuff that I think is maybe scariest. And that's why the last thing that Jesus said about hell, you know, he said that he says it's a place of eternal fire, a place of eternal punishment. Number three, Jesus most importantly spoke of hell as a place that you can escape from. Jesus literally, you know, not literally, Jesus basically said to humanity, look, the only way that anyone is going to hell is over my dead body. Over my dead body. Because on the cross, he took upon himself all of the things that would merit anyone going to hell. He took upon himself all of our sin. He took upon himself the wrath of God for sin. And in a way that's just too amazing to comprehend, like in the span of three hours, Jesus endured the concentrated horrors of hell, multiplied times every single human being who's ever lived, all at once. All at once. I mean, it's impossible to even comprehend that. 
And that's why you don't have to go there. That's why you, the only way anyone goes to hell is over Jesus' dead body. You know, there was a, um, a story I heard once about uh, an old farmer who was one of the guys who kind of traveled west uh, when all the American settlers were settling west. And the thing that, you know, one of those settlers out on the, you know, kind of the Midwestern plains would have feared more than anything else was a prairie fire. Because those things can move faster than a horse and all you would have to do is see a little bit of smoke on the horizon in a matter of seconds. That thing could be right on your doorstep. It could burn down your home, your family, everything you owned. And one day there's a farmer who's out there and he sees a little bit of smoke on the horizon and he knows exactly what a, you know, what a crisis he's now in. And so what he does is he goes back inside, he finds you know, a match or something and he lights the match, he drops it down on his feet and it kind of lights some of the grass down below him on fire. And the wind kind of carries the fire that he's lit, and it kind of takes it in the opposite direction. And then he has his whole family come and stand on the blackened, burnt ground where the fire had already been. So when the prairie fire came through, there was nothing left to burn, and the whole family was safe. And I want you to know tonight that we can stand where the fire has already been. Because Jesus took all of that fire upon himself when he died for us on the cross. And that is the most important thing to know about hell. (laughs) Um, You'll notice on the diagram, by the way, that um, it's divided into two halves. And and I'm not going to have time to get into all this, but if you really wanted to dig more deeply into this, you'll notice that um, when you study scripture through, it actually says there's sort of a similar idea of an intermediate state for both heaven and hell. Um, You can read about that in Luke 16 if you want to dig into that more. So... But now I just want to quickly wrap up. I want to move to the so what. So, okay, what is all this, you know, why does this matter? Um, number one, I want to just suggest to you that this matters because of thankfulness. Um, you know, imagine that tonight, or not tonight, it's too late, tomorrow. Um, tomorrow morning, you're at your house, and someone knocks on your door. And they knock on your door, and they say, hey, I've paid your debt. And you'd be like, well, okay, uh, what are you talking about? Like, are you talking about my, like, my you know, $25 cell phone bill? Or are you talking about like my $2,500 rent payment for this month? You know, like the amount of the debt that's been paid is going to determine your response to the person who paid it. And if Jesus paid an infinitely high price so that we could know heaven rather than hell, then that means that our response ought to be overflowing gratitude. So number one, what all of this means is that like, we have so much excuse to be thankful. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why Christians can't afford to dismiss the doctrine of hell. Um, of all the doctrines there are, there's no one that I wish I could erase more than the doctrine of hell. And yet, we can't afford to dismiss it because if we dismiss that, then what we are doing is we are, are diminishing the price that Jesus paid to buy us back. We're cheapening his love. Because on the cross, hell was what he got. So number one, thankfulness. Number two, witness. And then third one I'm going to mention here is boldness. This one about witness. You know, if what all of this um, that we've looked at tonight, if that really is true, then that also means that like we have every reason to prioritize sharing Jesus with other people. Um, when I was in college, there was a, a gal um, who was in my class and, and was not a Christian, and I remember I was talking with her once, and I don't even know how the subject came up, but we just, we somehow started talking about faith, and she just said something I've never forgotten. Um, she just said, like, 
I just don't really understand like how Christians work because like, man, if you guys really loved me like you said that you did, then like, wouldn't you be constantly trying to share the gospel with me so that I don't go to hell? And I really didn't have a response for her because she was right. If this is true, then we have like so much reason to actually be proactive in sharing Jesus with a world that doesn't know him. And then finally, um, number three, boldness. Um, I want to ask you a question. Um, what would life look like for you if you were completely free of fear? You know, like imagine that you weren't afraid of anything, not what people thought of you, um, not of death, you know, not of danger. You know, how, just imagine to yourself, how would life be different? If what we looked at tonight is true, then doesn't this explain Paul's boldness? I mean, Paul knows that nothing can touch him. I mean, the worst thing that could happen to him is that he could die, which actually, as we found out tonight, is not the worst thing. And so Paul's able to say, like, I'm willing to risk it all. Like, I'm willing to go on this awesome adventure with God because I don't have to be a slave to fear. And I was convicted by this this week. Um, I, <laughs> some of you guys know, I, I can be found in coffee shops very regularly, uh, mostly because I'm having lots of meetings. And uh, one of the places I go to is Cutter's Point. Um, you guys might go there. Um, and, and there are just some wonderful people that you meet at Cutter's Point. But the other day, I just got convicted. A lot of the folks who are there are kind of like old retirees. And, you know, like I just realized I don't know that I want that kind of life. Um, I mean, like, retirement does sound great someday, but, like, I think even more than that, I kind of want to live my life as of an adventure with Jesus. Uh, I want to be able to come to the end of my life and say, like, man, like, I um, kind of lived life full tilt to the hilt and didn't just kind of spend the last 20 years of my life just serving myself. If, if, if the resurrection is really true, then we can live that way. Because there's nothing that can touch us. Your work is, you, you are immortal until your work is done. So thankfulness, witness, and boldness. Thankfulness, witness, and boldness. These are three ways that all of this can hit home for you tonight. Um, and we're going to have some time now to discuss this in small groups. Um, would you pray with me? Father, thank you that um, no eye can see, no ear can hear, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Father, thank you for just how much you have done for us in Jesus, and would you help us to just um, stand even more confidently where the fire has already been, and just be thankful to the God who made that payment for us, um, so that we could know um, life in the new heavens and the new earth someday. In Jesus' name, amen.